I was born with the devil inside of me, he wrote. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help to sing. I'm Hilary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy, and we're from Complicit, a true mystery podcast. We'll join Kevin on The Aftermath to discuss even more about the infamous H.H. Holmes. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to The Jury Room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. In June 1893, a young woman named Anna Williams stepped off a train in Chicago. After traveling nearly 1,000 miles from her home in Texas, she was there to take in the sights. The Chicago World's Fair had been opened for a month and she was desperate to experience all the fair had to offer. With her sister Minnie and her new husband, Henry Gordon, Anna was incredibly protective of her sister. Their parents died young, and though the two girls had gone to live with different family members, they had rekindled a close relationship through letters and extended visits. Minnie was educated, but she was naive. So when she wrote Anna about an intense, all-consuming romance with a dashing, wealthy businessman named Henry Gordon, Anna urged caution. It all seemed a little forward, a little too intense. The relationship was moving too quickly for Anna's taste, despite her sister's warnings. Minnie married Henry in a small private ceremony and then invited Anna to spend some time with them in Chicago. It took no time at all for Anna's fears to be assuaged. She met Minnie and Henry on the train platform. He proceeded to treat the girls to a month-long extravaganza of delicious meals, jewelry, and exciting days at the World's Fair which was within walking distance of his fabulous hotel at 603 West 63rd Street. By the 4th of July, Anna was ready to say goodbye to Midlothian, Texas for good and take up permanent residence with Minnie and Henry. Henry offered to take care of all of her expenses and offered an extravagant trip to Europe. Excitedly, she wrote to her aunt in Texas and asked her to send her big trunk. She needn't worry, she told the aunt. Henry would provide for all her needs. He was rich. What poor Anna didn't know is that Henry Gordon wasn't who he said he was. That wasn't even his real name. He was a master swindler, mass murderer, and bigamist. In fact, he wasn't married to her sister at all. 
He had duped poor Minnie and pilfered her inheritance from a wealthy uncle to boot. What poor Anna didn't know is that Henry Gordon wasn't who he said he was. That wasn't even his real name. He was a master swindler, mass murderer, and bigamist. In fact, he wasn't married to her sister at all. He had duped poor Minnie and pilfered her inheritance from a wealthy uncle to boot. That letter to the aunt was the last anyone had ever heard from Anna Williams. Her sister Minnie fell off the map soon after. A few years later, their deaths would be added to a long list of innocent and unsuspecting women assumed to be murdered by one of America's most terrifying early serial killers, H.H. Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett on May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. His parents, Levi and Theodet Mudgett, supported their five children through farming and were devout Methodists who lived by the old proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child. A self-proclaimed mother's boy, Herman was a bit of a loner. When he was five years old, neighborhood bullies attempted to terrify young Herman by forcing him into a country doctor's office to stand face to face with a full-sized hanging skeleton. This was a transformative experience, and he became obsessed with anatomy because of it. Some of the more disturbing stories of his childhood include the claim that he trapped and disabled animals in the woods and then dissected them while they were still alive. He kept their skulls under his bed, a morbid trophy and an indication of what was yet to come. He had one close friend growing up, a boy named Tom. One day, while the boys were exploring an abandoned house, on the outskirts of town, Tom fell from the second story and died right in front of Herman. Details about this tragic accident are scarce, but given his future nefarious deeds, you have to wonder if there was something more sinister going on inside of that house. There is speculation, but no proof that Herman Mudgett may have been responsible for the strange drowning deaths of several kids from his New Hampshire hometown. This is explored in the History Channel series American Ripper, but no indisputable proof has yet been uncovered. Herman finished primary school and started teaching at the age of 16, a testament to his confidence as he didn't achieve high marks during his studies. After moving to Alton, New Hampshire, he met and eloped with a well-to-do girl named Clara Loverling. Within a year, she gave birth to a son named Robert, and Herman realized his small salary as a teacher wouldn't be enough to support his growing family in style. Human anatomy fascinated him, so Herman decided to go to medical school and become a doctor. First, he enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington, 
but by 1882, he had left the uni that university after only a year and headed for the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. The appeal? They were nationally known for allowing students to dissect human cadavers, a controversial practice at the time. Some accounts say Herman took Clara and his son with him to Michigan, and after a brief, tumultuous time together, she returned to New Hampshire, and Holmes just moved on. Others say he left her in New Hampshire, and she didn't hear from him for over a decade. Whatever happened, their relationship ended after Herman went to medical school, but he never officially divorced her. They remained legally married until his death in 1896. He was an average student. People like to rub this in as if it's the ultimate post-mortem insult. As a side gig to pay for his schooling, he worked as a traveling salesman for a publishing company, but pocketed the money he made rather than turning it into the company. He re-ran this scheme with another business located out of Portland, Maine, after he finished college. Holmes honed his skills as a swindler during these years, obtaining a master's degree in criminal enterprising, if you will. This little venture took him all over the West and gave him the first glimpse of his future home, Chicago. He finished his medical degree in 1884 and bounced around from town to town until he landed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he got a job as a druggist in a pharmacy. Things were going well for Herman until a child unexpectedly died after consuming medicine from the store. Mudgett picked up and left town almost immediately. He was headed for a new life in Chicago. He found pharmacy work lucrative and stable, but in Illinois, he had to pass a licensing examination before he could practice legally. To escape any fallout from the Philadelphia incident, he assumed a new name, H.H. Holmes. After a brief stint in Springfield, Illinois to take his pharmacist licensing exam, the newly christened Holmes arrived in Chicago in 1886 and quickly put down roots in the booming town of Inglewood, a suburb of Chicago annexed in 1889. The long perpetuated version of how he established himself in the city is as follows. On a scalding hot day in late August, H.H. Holmes stepped off of a train onto a platform and quickly began to get his bearings. He wandered the city streets, unsure of exactly what he was looking for, until he happened upon a drugstore at the corner of Wallace and 63rd Street. The sign read, E.S. Holton Drugs. Holmes walked in and introduced himself to the proprietor, an elderly woman who was working behind the counter, Mrs. Holton. Her husband, the owner of the store, was bedridden in their apartment up the stairs. He was dying of cancer. 
and Mrs. Holton didn't know what she was going to do. When this suave new man who identified himself as a doctor and a newly licensed pharmacist offered his help, the overwhelmed old woman quickly accepted. Within a few weeks, old Doc Holton died of cancer, and Holmes wasted no time comforting his widow. He told Mrs. Holton not to worry. He was there to help. He would buy the drugstore from her, and she could keep living in the apartment upstairs. The widow accepted, signed the deed over to Holmes, and within a few weeks, she was never seen again. Holmes told her inquiring friends that Mrs. Holton had gone to California to stay with family, and she liked it so much, she decided to move there permanently. The sign over the door of E.S. Holton's drugs was changed to H.H. Holmes Pharmacy. And just like that, Holmes had a legitimate business in the heart of one of the fastest growing suburbs of Chicago. The story goes that Holmes likely killed Mrs. Holton, but no evidence of this has ever been uncovered. The truth may be a little less cruel cold and calculated however historian and chicago tour guide adam seltzer author of hh holmes the true history of the white city devil uncovered evidence that shows the long perpetuated tale of the widow holton might be completely false in fact e.s holton the doctor and owner of the pharmacy was actually married to a woman in her 20s named Elizabeth Sarah Holton. She went to college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she very well might have come in contact with then Herman Mudgett, who was only a year or two younger than her. Before she went to the Women's Medical College of Chicago and got her degree, she opened her pharmacy sometime in the mid-1880s, around the same time she had her first child. She had her second child by 1887. So Seltzer speculates it's entirely possible she sold her pharmacy to Holmes because of that. She was still living a few blocks away from her old pharmacy when Holmes was apprehended in 1895. She didn't die until 1933, so Holmes didn't murder her. The story of the old ailing married couple swindled and possibly murdered by Holmes almost certainly came from sensationalist newspapers of the day. The story has simply been perpetuated so many times and fits so well with Holmes' character that people now know it as fact. During the drugstore period in 1887, he met a woman named Mitra Belknap while traveling through Minneapolis, Minnesota. H.H. Holmes was handsome, charming, and alluring to just about every woman he met. And now, for a quick break. In a world, there was one podcast that made all others look like silly little part-time, half-baked ideas that should have been thrown in the trash can after being written down. 
That's a super long-winded way of saying that Drunk Theory Podcast is the best-kept secret out there right now. They're a bunch of idiots talking about conspiracy theories, and when these four come together, they have the capability to solve just about any question coming their way. But keep in mind, they're idiots, so sometimes they won't have the answer. But we guarantee you'll end up laughing so hard you cry or urinate in your pants. I don't make the rules here. So let Matthew, Kara, Kelly, and Ryan give you everything you never know you needed and more. Only on Drunk Theory Podcast. Available on all major streaming platforms. More conspiracies coming soon. Now... Back to the show. Nearly every contemporary account of him describes an intense seducer who disregarded all unspoken rules of courtship, touched too frequently, and spoke too romantically. Within months of meeting, Holmes proposed to Mydra, and the pair were married on January 28, 1887. Unbeknownst to Mydra, her dashing Holmes was still very much married to his first wife, Clara. Though he did file a petition to divorce Clara, he never followed up, and he remained married to Clara until his death. Holmes took his new blonde-haired, blue-eyed Midwestern wife to the big bad city of Chicago. A bustling, metropolis of hot steel, iron, stockyards, and constant construction. The newlyweds installed themselves in the apartment above the drugstore and settled into married life, which, for Mitra, wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Within a year, she was pregnant, but the relationship grew strained when Mitra grew jealous over the womanly attention paid to her husband by young women who came into the pharmacy. By mid-1888, Mitra moved back in with her parents, who had moved from Minneapolis to Wilmette, Illinois, to be closer to her. Holmes continued to visit her and act like a doting husband and father. He swaddled their newborn baby girl and showered his wife with gifts. This was all likely done to keep that financial tap open. Mitra's family was wealthy, and it was partly with her money that he was able to buy a large chunk of land across the street from the drugstore. On this land, he would build his murder castle. He began construction on this three-story castle in 1888. The site happened to be close to Jackson Park, the soon-to-be site of the Chicago World's Fair. When the city of Chicago procured the rights to put on the Columbian Fair, aka the World's Fair of 1893, it was only by pure accident that H.H. Holmes happened to be there. The desire to eclipse the French triumph of the Paris World Fair of 1889, which produced the famous Eiffel Tower, was strong. It took Chicago City officials three years and an unbelievable amount of hard work to pull it off. Once open, the fair drew millions of international visitors, visitors who needed hotel rooms. This 
was to be a diverse three-story structure. Holmes wanted a pharmacy and several retail spaces on street level and apartments filling the second and third floors. Always an opportunist, Holmes repurposed some of the rooms on the second and third floors into hotel rooms for guests at the fair. Or so everyone thought. Part of the reason he built the third floor was to scam hotel suppliers and investors, and it would also serve a much darker purpose. As young women and men flocked to Chicago to take in the sights of the fair, they booked cheap hotel rooms at Holmes Castle, which was within walking distance of Jackson Park, where the fair was being held. Many travelers to Chicago during these years disappeared without a trace. Holmes himself received inquiries from families of young women looking for their missing daughters but none of them really suspected the young, handsome, successful doctor who owned substantial property was involved. Chicago was a big city, full of predators lurking around every corner. Sometimes people just disappeared. Holmes built this place by running a continuous scheme to defraud the construction workers because of the time and place Chicago was never lacking unemployed men who desperately needed paying work. Holmes would hire workers, complain about their methods, and then fire them without paying them. This method of shady business had several benefits. Not only was Holmes able to build his elaborate structure at a fraction of the cost, he was also able to avoid having to explain all of the odd amenities he was adding within. The strange amenities included a kiln. He told the installer it was for making windows, but it was the wrong size for that. It was the size for a crematorium. A wooden chute from the top floor to the basement, slick with axle grease. A soundproof, airtight vault next to his office. The room was built around the vault, and he never paid for it. When threatened with repossession, he said if they damaged his building at all, he would sue them. The vault was never repoed because of this. The building had weird staircases that led nowhere. There was one from a second floor bathroom to the third floor. Holmes built dozens of hidden rooms and secret passageways so he could move about undetected and disorient guests and creditors alike. He would hide goods he'd purchased on credit until he sold them for cash. Some rooms he had lined with asbestos to create more soundproof spaces. He also installed a trap door to the basement. Perhaps this was for transporting bodies. Holmes liked to buy things on credit and not pay for them. He transferred the ownership of the building to different aliases often. So when people would come looking to get paid, he would tell them it was the fault of the previous owner. 
This worked well a fair amount of the time. But when some creditor was especially persistent, Holmes would charm them with a warm smile and a witty comment. The angry creditor would leave thinking Holmes was his best friend. He was a master manipulator. By 1989, Holmes Castle was well underway. If not nearly complete, a new man came into his employ and grew to be an integral part of Holmes' story. The man was Benjamin Pietzel, a tall, lanky carpenter with a wife named Carrie, five children, and a heavy drinking problem. He started out doing manual labor for Holmes, but soon graduated to much more crooked deeds. When Pietzel was arrested for passing bad checks in Indiana, Holmes bailed him out, securing a long bond between the men that outlasted numerous insurance scams, cons, and presumably quite a few murders. Once his castle was complete in early 1891, Holmes hired Ned Connor to run the jewelry counter in his drugstore. It was a good job that provided a stable income for Ned and housing for his wife, Julie, and their young daughter, Pearl. The family shared an apartment on the second floor of Holmes' building. Before long, Holmes offered to employ Ned's wife, Julia, and his sister, Gertrude, in his drugstore. And just like with other young women in his presence, they swooned over the doctor. Much to Ned's dismay, his wife began to pay less attention to him as she spent more time with Holmes. He started to get suspicious that his wife was having an affair. As if sensing Ned's growing mistrust, Holmes called the jeweler to his second floor office one day and asked him for assistance. Holmes wanted to see if the vault he had installed was indeed soundproof. He asked Ned to step inside and scream as loudly as he could. Once Holmes closed the door to see if the sound traveled, Ned agreed. But the experience shook him. Inside the vault, he screamed at the top of his lungs, but no one could hear him. When Holmes opened the door and let him out, Ned scrambled out of the office. I didn't like that kind of business, he later said. Things unraveled for Ned fairly quickly after that. Ned's sister fled Chicago after she had come to him frazzled and upset, but refused to tell him what happened. Presumably, it had something to do with Holmes, but Gertrude wouldn't say. Ned booked a train ticket for his sister home to Iowa but she fell ill within weeks of her arrival and died. With smooth and measured sympathy, Holmes offered his condolences. But the truth was, Holmes wasn't sorry for Ned at all. In fact, he was having an affair with Ned's wife, but Ned refused to believe it. He continued to regard Holmes as a friend with his best intentions at heart. 
Holmes even offered to sell Ned the drugstore at an unbelievable low rate. But when creditors began hassling Ned for debts on furniture and fixtures that Holmes bought but never paid for, Ned's suspicions were once again aroused. Realizing he had been bamboozled and that Holmes had absconded with his wife's affections, Ned ultimately abandoned his interest in the drugstore. He petitioned Julia for a divorce, trialed and failed to win custody of his daughter Pearl, and started working in a jewelry store on the other side of town. Ned was free of Holmes, but his former family wouldn't be so lucky. Once the divorce was final, Julia Connor expected Holmes to marry her as he had promised through their months-long affair, but when the time came, he stalled. When Julia fell pregnant in the fall of 1891, she demanded the marriage once again. Unlucky for her, Holmes didn't want another baby, and he certainly didn't want to marry her. It had been the chase that kept up his interest in Julia. Now that she was free, his interest had waned. Holmes told Julia he would marry her, but only if she allowed him to perform the abortion. Julia reluctantly agreed and on Christmas Eve, 1891, H.H. Holmes laid Julia Connor down on a surgical table in a room on the second floor of the castle in preparation for an abortion. Instead, he administered a lethal dose of chloroform to Julia and killed her almost instantly. With Julia and her unborn child dead, Holmes had only one more loose end to tie up, Pearl Connor. Holmes most likely poisoned eight-year-old Pearl with chloroform as well, though it's unclear whether he disposed of the bodies via the kiln in the basement, or if he sold the corpse to Charles Chapel, an associate of Holmes and an articulator who specialized in stripping bones of all flesh and selling the skeletons to medical schools. Regardless, Julia and Pearl Connor were never heard from again. Holmes told the neighbors in the building that Julia's sister had suddenly taken ill and she and the little girl had gone to the ailing woman as quickly as they could. When Holmes' associate and confidant Benjamin Pietzel discussed decided to get professional help for his alcoholism, he wound up meeting a young stenographer named Emmeline Sigrand working in a, the clinic. She was young, attractive, sweet, and blonde. Just Holmes' type. When Pietzel met her, he wrote to Holmes and described her as a great beauty. Based on his description, Holmes offered her a job in his hotel as a stenographer for a substantial pay increase. She insistently accepted. And when Pietzel left the clinic and returned to Holmes Castle, she went with him. And now for a quick break. 
Hey guys, did you know that you can burn up to 40 calories for every 15 minutes of laughing? Get in shape with that trophy wife life. We are a comedy podcast that guarantees to make you really, really, really good looking. Join us as we discuss hard-hitting, important topics like asshole kid moments, the best drunk stories, best pranks ever pulled, and the dumbest criminals that get themselves busted. So if you want to lose weight and be really, really, really good looking, find that Trophy Wife Life today. Available on all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Don't forget to rate and review. Only five stars are being accepted at this time. And until our next episode, keep living that Trophy Wife Life. Now, back to the show. Before long, Emmeline became Holmes' mistress and moved into the castle with him. Relatives who came to visit her reported her she was smitten. He told her he was the son of an English lord. When he proposed marriage and she accepted, he promised they would honeymoon in Europe where she could meet his lordly parents. But soon, Holmes' hold on Emmeline began to wane. Perhaps she caught a glimpse behind the curtain. Perhaps she found out he was already married twice before, and both wives were still living. No one knows for sure, but what we do know is Emmeline disappeared around Christmas 1892 just before she was scheduled to take a trip to visit her parents in Indiana. Holmes told neighbors and friends that she had gone off to be married. He even produced a printed copy of a marriage announcement that she had allegedly sent to him. Her family and friends back in Indiana received their own mailed versions of the announcement. Much to their confusion, the local paper in Emmeline's hometown even printed a marriage announcement. Curiously, a day or two after she disappeared, neighbors reported seeing Holmes and the caretaker of the property, Patrick, carrying a large, heavy trunk down the stairs and putting it on a cart waiting outside. No one knew what was inside, and no one but Holmes and the driver knew where it went. Emmeline was never heard from again. By spring of 1893, Holmes had set his sights on a new mistress, a naive young woman named Minnie Williams from Mississippi. He had met and wooed her from a time under the alias Henry Gordon while she was in college in Boston. Orphaned at a young age, Minnie had gone to live with a wealthy uncle in Fort Worth, Texas, and was now the heiress of substantial property holdings. Holmes knew a good mark when he saw one. The problem was, though, Minnie was fascinated with the dashing Holmes. She wouldn't move to Chicago without a promise of marriage. Holmes started to lose interest, and his visits and correspondence with Minnie dwindled. Once she finished school, she moved first to Denver, then to Chicago, and looked him up. Holmes moved in for the kill. He picked up right where they left off, staring too long, 
touching too intimately, Minnie, just like her predecessors, was smitten. Before long, she had moved into Holmes' castle and became his mistress. Holmes again promised marriage and convinced her to transfer the deed to her Fort Worth property to him. He, in turn, transferred it to his cohort, Benjamin Pietzel, for safekeeping. Then he arranged a private wedding ceremony. Just Minnie, himself, and a preacher to seal the deal. Minnie was over the moon. Her new husband made so many promises. The marriage was a sham. No record of their marriage certificate exists. Within months, Minnie's sister Anna, a teacher from Texas, who had an inheritance of her own, was en route to Chicago for a visit at home's suggestion. Initially skeptical of the whirlwind romance between her sister and this mysterious man, Anna's suspicious melted away when she met him. Holmes was courteous, kind, and overly affectionate. He reeled Anna in the same way he did with every other woman he had met. The threesome spent June and early July of 1893 gallivanting around Chicago, spending time at the fair, eating at fine restaurants, and seeing shows. Before long, Holmes suggested that Anna stay for good. He was rich, he would pay for her expenses. She was the beloved sister of his beloved wife after all. Better yet, they would all go to Europe for an extended vacation and they would leave in a few days. Anna Williams accepted Holmes' proposal at once, but it proved to be a fatal move. A few days later, while Minnie was out making preparations for their trip, Holmes offered to take Anna on a tour of the castle. In his office, he asked Anna to go into the soundproof vault to get something. As she entered, the door closed behind her. According to Holmes, she thought it was an accident, but soon realized that she was running out of oxygen. The young woman beat against the door, kicking it so hard with her foot, she left a print that police would find two years later. It didn't take long for Anna to expire, and it's believed that Holmes disposed of her remains in a pit of quicklime in the basement. He killed Minnie soon after. According to the confessions Holmes wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1896, just before his execution, he killed Minnie with poison while staying in a hotel in a small town of Chicago. He allegedly buried her in the basement of a home there. Per Eric Larson's account, Devil in the White City, Holmes showed up with William's sister's trunk at the pizza house and gifted the contents to Benjamin's wife and their five children. He told the wife, Carrie, that Minnie had married and moved out east. She wouldn't be needing her old clothes anymore. 
In the late summer of 1893, the third floor of Holmes Castle caught on fire. Some historians have suggested that Holmes started himself to avoid creditors or even to claim insurance as he had done before. This is right in the middle of the World's Fair and would have seriously inhibited Holmes' murder spree. But the fire also conveniently covered up loads of evidence related to the murders. Holmes tried to collect on a $6,000 insurance policy because of damage caused by the fire, but a crafty insurance adjuster named F.G. Cowie decided he didn't like the story Holmes was spinning and started digging. In the process, he stirred up all of Holmes' creditors from the previous five years. They hired a lawyer who summoned Holmes to an office in Chicago. There, Holmes was greeted by dozens of creditors and lawyers. Holmes was an old pro, however. He gave a heartfelt, teary-eyed explanation that he was simply a guy who had fallen on hard times. He just needed a little more time and he would pay them. The lead attorney asked Holmes to wait outside while the creditors argued over what to do. Holmes ran and immediately left Chicago. He headed south for Fort Worth to see what he could do with Minnie Williams' estate, and he had a few traveling companions. His old friend Benjamin and a Holmes new infatuation named Georgina Yoke. Georgina was young, blonde, and almost childlike. He met her at a Chicago department store where she worked, and after a brief courtship, asked her to marry him. She traveled with him down to Texas, then to Denver, Colorado, where they married in 1894. She was his third official wife. It's unknown how much Georgina was privy to during these next few months, but Holmes and Benjamin ran several scams as they moved from place to place. In Fort Worth, Holmes started building a second murder castle, but fled after he and Pietzel tried and failed to run a horse-stealing scam. They ended up with warrants being issued for their arrest. The group went to St. Louis, where Holmes bought a drugstore. Pietzel's wife and five children joined them there. Not long after, St. Louis police arrested and jailed Holmes for selling mortgaged goods. While in prison, he got uncharacteristically chatty about a con he was thinking about running. He planned on taking out a $10,000 life insurance policy with Fidelity Mutual Life Association on his friend Benjamin. Then, faking his death by using a similar-looking corpse to satisfy the insurance company, he told his cellmate, famous train robber Marion Hedgepath, that if he could help Holmes secure a trustworthy attorney to carry out the plan, 500 of that money would be his. Hedgepath, who was serving a 25-year sentence at that point, agreed and found Holmes a lawyer named Jephtha Howe. This agreement turned out to be Holmes' downfall. After he got out of prison, 
Holmes went with Petzl to Philadelphia, where they planned to run the life insurance scheme. Only for Petzl, things didn't work out as they had planned. They took out the fidelity policy on Petzl for $10,000, and they planned to fake his death in a lab explosion and split the money. Petzl agreed to do it so his wife could collect on the policy and then split it with Holmes and Howe, the lawyer. Instead, Holmes really killed Petzl and made it look like an accident. After this, Holmes collected the money and then went to see Carrie Petzl in St. Louis. He told Carrie that her husband was hiding out in London until things cooled down with the insurance money and then convinced her to let him take her three middle children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, on its trip to Toronto. From there, he went on a bizarrely coordinated road trip through Indiana, Michigan, and Lower Canada. With Carrie Petzl in one group, three of her children in another, and his young wife, Georgina, in yet another. All were ignorant of the other's proximity. And when it was all said and done, three of the Petzl children were dead. It took a savvy Philadelphia detective named Frank Geyer to piece it all together. Carrie Petzl returned to Philadelphia in the fall of 1894 with her two remaining children and began to desperately seek answers. Where were her three children? Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Why had she not heard from her husband, Benjamin? By then, the man she thought was a dear family friend, H.H. Holmes, was completely out of touch. She hired Detective Frank Geyer to find her children. Unbeknownst to her, the Fidelity Insurance Company had already hired the famous Pinkerton detectives to locate Holmes on suspicion of insurance fraud in the case of her husband, Benjamin Petzl. Holmes had failed to pay Hedgepath, his St. Louis cellmate, and the $500 that he had promised him. In retaliation, Hedgepath told police of the scheme, and Fidelity had hired their own detectives to bring the scammer in. In less than a month, on November 17, 1894, H.H. Holmes was located and arrested in Boston on an old warrant for stealing horses in Texas. Rather than being extradited to Texas to face punishment there, he confessed to the insurance fraud in Philadelphia, though he maintained Ben Petzl was still alive and well. Frank Geyer questioned Holmes about the Petzl children while he sat in his Philadelphia jail cell. Holmes told him the children were in the care of Minnie Williams, and they were gallivanting around London. Geyer refused to believe him, and instead decided to retrace the steps of the long, confusing journey on which Holmes had taken with the children. For the next six months, Detective Frank Geyer pounded the pavement in Detroit, Indianapolis, and Toronto looking for any sign of Carrie's three missing children. What he found was chilling. And now for a quick break. 
Hey guys, I'm Abby and I'm Shauna and we're the host of a podcast called Anxious and Afraid. Do you love deep dives into true crime, the paranormal, strange history, conspiracies? Well, so do we and each week we take turns surprising each other with whatever anxiety inducing subject we are obsessed with that week. Tune in each week to hear Shauna mispronounce words. Um, the guys on the lookout apparently asked for binoculars. Did I say that right? So the photos showed him and his colleague entertaining. <laughs> Wait, am I saying And listen in as Abby constantly asks too many questions. I was about to ask you a lot of questions, and I'm glad that you interrupted me. Continue. <laughs> I would have told you to shut up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Stop I'm trying to do. Stop quizzing me. Okay, you know, I did enough research. <laughs> Let me just tell the damn story. Jesus. Continue. Episodes drop every Tuesday, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at our website, anxiousandafraid.com. We're always looking for new friends, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. Now, back to the show. Geyer canvassed the hotels in these cities, scouring log and guest books, showing pictures of homes and the children. He uncovered Holmes was traveling with three groups simultaneously without each of them knowing the other existed. Holmes with Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Holmes with Carrie Pietzel and her daughter. Holmes with Georgina Yoke as his new bride. Eventually, Geyer pieced together the last known location of each child. He found poor Howard's bones and teeth partially cremated in the stove of the house Holmes had rented for the children while staying in Detroit. Holmes had poisoned the young boy with chloroform, then dismembered his body and burned him piece by piece in the stove. In the cellar beneath the house Holmes had rented in Toronto, Geyer found the naked bodies of Alice and Nellie Pietzel buried in shallow graves. Nellie Pietzel had a club foot and Holmes had removed it to avoid identification of the bodies. What's even more tragic is their mother was often within six blocks of them at any given time during the trip that ended with their murders. Holmes had played the ultimate game of manipulation and control. There was no reason for him to kill the children other than a power trip. After the discovery of Alice and Nellie, police searched Holmes' Chicago castle but they didn't find enough evidence to charge Holmes with murder. Newspapers of the day claimed police found women's undergarments, human and animal remains, a wooden dissection table, and things only described as torture instruments or death devices. However, historians are skeptical about the accuracy of those reports. H.H. Holmes stood trial for the murder of Ben Pietzel in Philadelphia on October of 1895. He was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Tabloid papers ran wild with the story. Suddenly, every missing girl in Chicago was a victim attributed to Holmes. The Philadelphia Inquirer paid Holmes for a written confession. 
Holmes received somewhere in the ballpark of $7,500. Holmes confessed to 27 murders, though only fit about 15 were confirmed. The validity of these confessions is questioned for a few reasons. First, Holmes claimed to have murdered people who were still alive. Second, he recanted the confessions the day of his execution. On May 7, 1896, H. H. Holmes stood upon the gallows in Philadelphia's Moyo Mensing Prison and told the crowd he had only ever accidentally killed two women and claimed that he was innocent of all other crimes. Then, after a short prayer, he was hanged. His last request was to be buried under 10 feet of concrete which was actually not an uncommon request. Robbing graves for bodies was extremely common in the late 1800s because of the high demand for cadavers in medical schools, something Holmes himself had taken advantage of. Many people who were wealthy enough to do so had themselves encased in concrete to thwart body snatchers. Years later, Holmes was disinterred amid rumors that it wasn't his body in the grave. He was found almost perfectly preserved, and investigators were able to confirm once and for all that H.H. Holmes was dead and buried, though his crimes still haunt us all to this day. Thanks for listening, and remember... You never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.